Here we are, God, send us. Or more personally, here I am, God, send me. And we, we make that proclamation knowing that some of the places that he sends us into are going to be hard. Knowing that some of the places that he sends us into are going to be devastating and, and, and going to be just difficult. And it's going to send us into some dangerous places and some really hard situations. But when we, when we think about that, I think a lot of times we think that he's going to send us someplace like, like out there on the streets in, in Nashville in the homeless camps. You know, down in some of those back alleys that we've been down, some of us have been down in together. You know, on those rough streets out there in those inner cities, man, doing ministry there, or where we think that he's going to send us, you know, down to Haiti, like after they had that earthquake and into, you know, been to some of those places too, not the recent one, but the one in Port-au-Prince a long time ago, been there to see the destruction and the pain and the torment that have been caused. We, we think about being sent, you know, in, into some really dangerous places like over there in Afghanistan and in other places in the Middle East where your life is literally on the line every moment as a missionary of Christ. You know, we think about those being some of the hard situations that we would get sent into. But I want to say today that sometimes the hardest situations that we get sent into are just right here. Sometimes the hardest things that we're called to do when we tell God, hey, Lord, send me, send us, uh, is to just walk through somebody's pain alongside them. Because as a pastor, or as a Christian, or even just as a person, like some of the most trying Parts of my entire life have, have just been in those moments when I've been asked just to, 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 to walk with somebody hand in hand through the grief that they're suffering in their lives. And it's hard. It's hard. You know, I've been in a lot of situations like that. I remember one specifically. I remember standing around a, a hospital bed in Cosair Children's Hospital with a family about to lose a child. I remember that pain. Yeah, and I didn't know who was going to be here today. I preached the same thing first service. But brother, I remember that day, and I'll never forget it. But I didn't know what to say. I, I didn't know what to do. I, there, there's nothing that I could say in, in, in order to make it any better. There's no healing words that I have in my vocabulary to speak. And so I was just there. Just there. Kept my mouth mostly shut. And I'll tell you why. I learned the power of silent presence a long time ago. In case you don't know me well, let me introduce you to me. My name is Paul, and I think that I have something to say in about every situation that comes up. I think that I have something to add to whatever situation that we find ourselves in. I've got some kind of, you know, uh, wisdom that I feel like I need to share into whatever everybody's going through. And then, and, and, you know, most of it comes from here. I mean, I just want to share what the Word of God says because I believe that there's healing and truth and encouragement and power that is located in here that can help us get through whatever we need to get through. But before but I can't blame it on God. Before I was a follower of Christ, I still the same way. I still felt like that I had something to add to your situation, that I had some kind of special Gnostical wisdom that you needed to hear from me. Um, but it was when my wife lost her brother that everything changed because my wife's brother passed and, and, and he was her best friend and her, her person and, and they were so close, so, so close. And when, when he passed away, man, she was broken beyond measure. 
And, and I loved her then just like I love her now. And, and, and I wanted with everything in me to be able to encourage her and, and to be able to help her get through this pain and to be able to help her be fixed and, and walk on what she needed to walk through and, and do what she needed to do. And so I kept opening my stupid mouth and putting my foot right in it. And everything that I said made things so much worse. And still, I was just beating it over and over and over. And I'd be like, well, what y'all do is this, and what y'all do is that. If you can just get through it, and we'll go through this, and we'll do the thing and the other thing. And, and, and it took me way too long to realize that, that, that all the words that I was spewing forth were just hurting her worse. We're just making things worse. We're straining our relationship and making the connection that we had just more and more distant. And then so I prayed. I remember praying, and I wasn't really a follower of Christ. I mean, I knew about God, but I didn't know God. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I knew about God. I knew who God was. And I knew God was good. <laughs> I knew he was good, but I, but I didn't really know him, but I prayed anyway. I prayed anyway just because I loved her, and I prayed that God would help her, and that he would help me, and that he would help me help her. Does that make sense? God, help her, help me, help me, help her. And then, like, something strange happened, and I kind of felt that what I know now is the influence of the Holy Spirit. I didn't really know what it was then, but I just had this overwhelming urge to shut up. I don't get that urge much anymore. So when I do, I know it's from God. You know what I'm saying? But I got this overwhelming urge just to shut my trap. And I did. You ever seen that Facebook meme? It's like the golden girls and the one's like trying to get away and the other one's got her hand over his mouth. And it's like, Holy Spirit. Yeah, there it is. That's the one. Yeah, that's me. I'm Sophia, right? Holy Spirit ever do that to you guys? Yeah, it does it to me all the time, right? Most of the time it's on Facebook. I'm like, just, I'm going to tell them exactly what they need to hear with the thing. And the Holy Spirit's like, delete that moronic stuff. I did it just earlier this week. Like I had responded like 12 paragraphs of a text message to send to somebody. And I was like, yeah, I'll show them. They need this biblical truth in their life. And I'm going to get them with this. And then I was like... And I hit backspace and just put K. Just put K. <laughs> but anyway, the Holy Spirit spoke to me in my, in the, in, in my wife's you know, time of trying and just told me just to shut up. And, and so I learned in that moment that I've been able to apply to a lot of the rest of my ministry life how to just use the power of silent presence in, in order to help people that are hurting. And so instead of trying to jabber in my wife's ear while she was in the midst of her pain, I'd just sit there by her, but, but not too close. You know what I'm saying? And I'd stroke her hair like once. See if it was okay, you know? And sometimes it was. And sometimes it wasn't. And then like if she put her hand down here, y'all know I'm talking, some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Like if she put it down there, then I would put mine on top of it, Right? And then she pulled it away. I'd be like, no, I wasn't doing nothing. But I just learned what it meant just to be present. I, I learned this. I learned that my, in, in, in her life, in the lives of the hurting and the broken, that your presence is more powerful than your prose. And if you don't know what prose is, prose just means just normal spoken or written language. Right? Right? My, my presence was more powerful than my prose in her life. Or in other words, it didn't matter what I had to say. Anything I had to say wasn't going to make any things any better. But just the fact that I was willing to be there with her 
that meant something. And, and as today, as we talk about being there for people in the midst of their pain and suffering, I just want to encourage you with the same thing, that your presence is more powerful than your prose. Just being there for them is more important to them than anything you can say to them. And, and these, these chapters of Job that we're going to go over today are just going to reiterate that fact over and over and over and over. To be present but not presenting your argument, if that makes sense. Today, um, we're going to study the book of Job starting at the end of chapter 2 and going all the way through chapter 32. I hope you guys wore comfortable shoes and that you're hydrated no, I'm just kidding. We're not going to study all those scriptures, man. We're just going to get like a 30,000 foot view of the whole thing. Because like I'd ask everybody to read the book of Job. And my, my awesome aunt came to me and she was like, hey, Paul, like I, you know, read the, the first few chapters of Job are incredible. And then I'm in like 10 or 12 and like, aren't they just saying the same thing over and over? And I was like, pretty much. And I think that's the point. That all this incessant jabbering that Job's friends do really doesn't help him any at all. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, I'm going to read just, uh, just like four verses from Job chapter two, one verse from Job chapter three, and then eight verses from Job chapter four. And uh, it's going to give us kind of the gist of what's going on in the middle of this book. Word of God says in Job chapter two, starting in verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends... Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite heard about all his adversity that had happened to him. Each of them came from his home, and they met together to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. That sounds pretty good, right? And when they looked at him from a different distance, they could barely recognize him. And so they wept aloud, and each man tore his robe and threw dust in the air and on his head. Man, that's good too. And they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights, and no one spoke a word to him because they saw that his suffering was very intense. Man, if we could stop there, the book of Job would be totally different. But they just couldn't do it. Job chapter 3, verse 1 says this, After this, Job began to speak and cursed the day that he was born. Hey, Job's just venting. You ever have to vent? Job needed to vent. Job says stuff like, man, I wish that I was never born. I wish that I'd just die right now. Why won't God just take me to the grave and just leave me there until he comes back to get us? I know that I've felt that way before. Anybody else besides me just feel that way? Yeah, I know I'm on the internet about twice a month going, Jesus, can't you just come back right now? I posted the other day. I was like, Jesus, ain't it about time yet? I mean, I'm ready. And then Job chapter four happens. And Eliphaz, the first of Job's buddies, says this. Should anyone try to speak to you when you're exhausted? Yet who can keep from speaking? So basically what he's saying is, I know that I shouldn't say nothing. But I just can't help myself. Indeed, you've instructed many and strengthened weak hands. And your words have steadied the one that was stumbling and braced the knees that were buckling. Job, you're a pretty good dude. But now that this has happened to you, you've become exhausted. And it strikes you and you're dismayed. Isn't your piety your confidence and the integrity of your life your hope? Consider, who has perished when he was innocent? Where have the honest been destroyed? In my experience, oh yeah, that's what we need to hear about is Eliphaz, his experience, right? In my experience, those who plow injustice and those who sow trouble reap the same. In other words, guys, what he's saying is, Job, everything that you're getting right now, you deserve it. I don't know what you did, but you did something, and now God is paying you back. Father, we just pray that you'll unlock this word to us today. 
That we, that we would just experience the power of your presence in this place right now. And that you would just empower us to be the people of God you've called us to be. That we'd be willing to show up in people's lives, to shut our mouth, and to direct them to you for their healing. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let's give God a shout of praise up in here, can we? And you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. I, I love this part. You know, Job chapter 2, man, he says... They showed up and then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights and no one spoke a word to him because they saw that his suffering was very intense. Now those are good friends right there. That when you see your loved one hurting, that you would just go to them and, and, and rip your robe too. And then just go sit by them in the midst of their pain and not say nothing. And just be there and just be present and just be available to them in the midst of their pain. And then not say nothing. And if they would have stopped there, then at the end of the book in chapter 42, instead of God reprimanding them, I think God would have celebrated them. I think he would have. I think God would have been like, man, your friends did a good job comforting you in this pain. But instead, as we'll get to at the end of this sermon, God doesn't say that to them. God says, I'm angry with you bunch because you didn't talk about me right and you weren't there for my, my servant Job. And, and if they would have just showed up and let that be the end of it, then the book of Job would be completely different, but they weren't able to do that, were they? They weren't able to do that. A, a, a great theologian said this, that these friends of Job's tormented him as much as any of the attacks of Satan. And they did it all in the name of trying to help. Anybody ever try to help and make things way worse? Anybody besides me? Yeah, make things way worse. By trying to help. Well, where did these guys go wrong? And Yeah, man, me too. Where did they go wrong in their attempt to try to help? Well, let me, let me make it real clear to you by saying this. Just because you think something is true doesn't mean that it is. Also, now this one's harder for our culture to understand. Just because a lot of people think that something's true also doesn't mean that it is. I mean, I, I love the theory of democracy. I mean, let's all go and vote in government by the people and whatever. And that's great and fine and dandy. doesn't make it true. And here's the other part. And this is the hardest part for us Christians and Bible people to, to kind of understand. So all of you like theologians out there, get ready for this one. Just because something's true doesn't mean that it's helpful. Oh, doesn't mean that it's always helpful. Matter of fact, the, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 10 says this, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And just because all things are lawful doesn't mean that all things build up. I have a pet peeve. Anybody in here have a pet peeve? Yeah, something that really bothers you maybe way more than it should. I've got two. The first one is missed blocks. I don't like missed blocks. It's a football thing, never mind. The second thing that I don't like is, is when people take a Bible verse and throw it around casually, what they think is in the Bible, and throw it around casually when it's just not. I, I, it, 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 it does something to me on the inside, right? I don't like it when people just take something casual and they throw it around as if it's biblical truth when it's just not. Like people will be like, well, Jeremiah 29 and 11 says that God's going to prosper me. No, it doesn't. They were in slavery for 70 years. Read your Bible. God won't put more on you than you can handle. That's not what it says. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says that we were pressured to the point of death, but we depended on God to get us through it. God will put more on you than you can handle, by the way. Way more. As a matter of fact, he does it on purpose so that you'll cry out to him. I don't like that stuff. It just, it, it irritates me to my core, probably way more than it should in some situations. And I realize that about myself. I'm just being transparent. Like, like I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing all the time. Okay, a matter of fact, it's really not a good thing all the time. All right, here goes. So I, I preach a lot of funerals. And, and uh, this may sound weird, but I like preaching funerals. And the reason is, is as, yes, emotionally it's hard and it's a struggle, but I like preaching funerals because I get to preach the gospel. I mean, what better time is there to share the truth and the grace and the glory of Jesus Christ than in the reality of it? I mean, I love when I'm able to say, hey, this person made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. I know they did. I was there. I baptized them in Jesus' name. And if I'm drawing breath right now, I believe just as much that they're in heaven praising God in glory right now by their profession. Or I get to say, hey, they never made a profession of Jesus Christ. I don't know if they're where they're at. Don't be like them. I never said that. I never said that. I've never said that. But there's this thing that people say at funerals that really bothers me. And it bothers me way more than it should. And I know that. I'm just being honest with y'all. It bugs me way more than it should. I should just let it go and it shouldn't bother me at all. But people say this. Well, so-and-so passed away because God needed another angel. I'm not at a funeral. I'm at a church. You guys came here today to learn what the Bible says, right? So here's the truth. Angels are angels, and people are people. And angels never turn into people. I don't care what city of angels with Nicolas Cage says. And people never turn into angels. I don't care what the poems and the funeral stuff says. Angels are angels for all of eternity, and they have the wings and the flaming swords, and people are people for all eternity. But here's the thing. You don't want to become an angel. The angels are jealous of you because the Son of God gave himself as a sacrifice and poured out his blood, not for them, but for you. Can you say amen? amen. Yeah, man, give him praise for that, for you. You don't want to be an angel. You want to be a people. Angels are angels. People are people. For all of it, there's no crossover, ever. I said, Lord, help me. I need to stop. <laughs> and so people say that at funerals all the time. It just bugs me. But you guys are never going to do that, are you? <laughs> and so I'm at this one funeral, right? And, and, and I know the family. I don't know the person that well, but I know the family. They're, they're friends of mine. And they keep saying it over and over and over and over and over again. You're like, well, so-and-so got his wings. So-and-so got his halo. He's up there playing a harp and blowing his trumpet right now. Is he? God just needed another angel. If he needed another angel, he'd create another angel. That, that was in my head. They even had like a, like a picture on the picture board, you know, where they have the board, where they got the pictures of the, you know, of the loved one that's passed on. And one of them was like a picture of this guy, like surrounded by clouds. And it was like, God needed another angel. 
Anyway, my blood pressure is way too high. And like I said, I take it way too seriously. It's just silly in a lot of ways. But I'm sitting there and like my eye starts twitching. I don't play poker anymore, really. So let me, I'll tell you my tale. Like when I'm upset, like my eye twitches, my left eye twitches and it won't stop. So if you ever see me walking around like this, you know, something's going on, right? Like if I'm like, it's just this one and it just won't stop. So my eye's twitching and I'm there and there's this big crowd of people around me just like beating me down with my loved one turned into an angel. That's how I felt anyway. And so here comes my wife and I'm like, oh, my saving grace. Here comes my beautiful wife and she comes walking up, dressed real nice because we're at the funeral. And she, she got that, that million dollar smile that just lights up the room when she chooses to throw it around. And she's just got those crystal blue eyes and she's smiling at me and she comes walking to me. I'm like, oh, here comes my love. And she leans into me real close and she says, baby. And I was like, yeah, love. And she said, if you tell these grieving people that angels are angels and people are people, then the next funeral that we're gonna go to is gonna be yours. And it was then that I realized that just because something's true doesn't mean that it's necessarily helpful in every situation. And so what we as the people of God have to do is balance our truth and grace out real well uh, and be really discerning on only sharing some truth in love when it's actually helpful, can you say amen? <laughs> that, is a, that is a very true story, by the way. A very true story. Discern what's helpful. Discern what's helpful. And if you're questionable about whether or not what you have to say is going to be helpful or not, just don't. Just don't. Look, chapters 4 through 31 of the book of Job basically goes like this. Eliphaz talks and Job responds. Bildad talks and Job responds. Zophar talks and Job responds. And then the cycle starts over and Eliphaz talks again and Job responds. And it goes on like that three times except in the last one Zophar's done. He ain't got nothing else to say. But it all starts with this. Like I read to you in Job chapter 4, Eliphaz says to Job, I know that I shouldn't say this. I know that I shouldn't say this, but I just can't help myself. And how many times has that happened to you in your life? You know you shouldn't have said it, but you just can't help yourself. And as soon as it came out of your mouth, you were like, ah, that was stupid. But you remember the speak sermon series I did? And I had people come down here on the table and squirt out the toothpaste. But the, and, and we told them like, like, okay, the game is that you squirt the toothpaste out as fast as you can get it out, right? But then that wasn't really the game. The real game was we gave them a plastic spoon and said, okay, now the real contest is put it back in. And of course you can't get toothpaste back into a toothpaste tube once it's been squirted out. You also can't unsay what you've said. Once you've spewed it out, you can apologize and you can try to make up and you can say you was joking and you can say you didn't mean it. What you say has been said and that's it. And way too many times we're like Eliphaz and we walk up into somebody's life and, and we feel like that we need to speak some truth into their life. 
And so knowing that we probably ought to just shut our mouths and keep it to ourselves. Yeah, I mean, the old rule applies, right? If you ain't got nothing good to say, then don't say nothing. And yet we just can't help ourselves for some reason. And so we go and we word vomit all over them, right? That or this part's even worse. I know what I'll do. I'll get on here and I'll make me a Facebook poster. And I'll say all the stuff online that I'm too cowardly to say to somebody in person. I mean, I still do it too. Luckily, the Holy Spirit a lot of times gets me right in the middle of it. and makes me delete whatever stupid post that I'm about to put on the Facebook. Thank God that we serve a God like that. But really, it comes down to this, man, for... For all these like 26 chapters or whatever it is, 28 chapters, whatever, whatever they keep talking for, they, they say some stuff that is real close to the truth, right? Real close to the truth. And, 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 and they say this. These are their points. These are their two points in their conclusion they draw from that. They say this. Number one, God is in control. That's what they're saying. I mean, we can agree with that, right? I mean, God's, God is completely sovereign. God is in control of, of every rotation of this crazy world that we, that we call home. He's, he's, he, you know, God has the number of, of breasts that you have in your body number, man. God knows God's in total control. I think we would agree with that, right, as the people of God. God's sovereign. Uh, number two, that God is just and fair. I mean, I believe that God is the God of justice. God's just. God's fair. God is a, he's a God of justice. But then this is the conclusion that they come to. Therefore, God blesses the righteous and curses the wicked. Does he? Sometimes. Not always. And so these guys are sharing with them something that's so close to the truth. So close to the truth. And yet it's so unhelpful in any situation of suffering that I could ever imagine. I mean, can you imagine going to somebody that's in severe pain because they've lost a loved one or they're struggling with a sickness and being like, well, you know, God's in control of this situation. Yeah. And you know, we serve a just God. Yeah. Well, you know, you probably deserve what you got there. <laughs> and then they go on to say, you know, you probably should just repent and everything will be okay. If you'll just repent, if you'll just, just say you're sorry to God, then he'll just fix it all. And Job keeps trying to explain to these guys, no, you don't understand. I've already repented. I, I don't have anything to repent for. You know, and he's not saying that he's perfect, that he doesn't need to repent for anything. What he's saying is that he hasn't sinned to cause the suffering that he's in right now. He's saying, I haven't sinned to cause this. This is not caused by my sin. I don't need to repent for anything, but not because I haven't done anything, but because I haven't done anything that caused this. And then he keeps reasoning with them that over and over, and they just keep going back to, no, you deserve what you've got. Something you've done has caused this. They're reducing God down to a cause and effect relationship. You do this, you get that. You do this, you get that. You do this, you get that. But I want to present to you today that we don't serve a cause and effect kind of God. Well, church, we serve an uncaused cause of everything kind of God whose ways are higher than our ways and whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And there's no way that we can even begin to fathom what's going on in his mind or in his plan or even in our lives. But Job's friends can't get their heads wrapped around that. And so they start just making up things that Job might have did. It seems funny until I realize that I've done that a whole bunch in my life. Wonder how much dope they did to get themselves in that situation. Wonder how many people that they slept with to get themselves in that situation. Wonder how much money they stole to buy that thing. 
I'm just saying. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. I mean, I've cast a few stones at people every now and then, still do sometimes before I even realize what I've done. You ever just whoop a stone at somebody before you even realize what you've done? Just cast a judgment on somebody before you even, and, and, and we wouldn't do that consciously. But, but it's just the flesh, the sin that lives within us. I mean, I'll just whoop a stone at somebody and just cast a judgment on them before I even realize I've done it. And then I'll be like, oh, that was yucky. <laughs> Who are you? But it's just that sin just like tries to get back on us every now and then. And it don't live within me, but man, them grave clothes are alive, man. They'll come out of that grave and try to pull you back in. Torment stuff, man. And so they start making up stuff. They, they, they say this, you, you've given no water to the weary to drink. And you've withheld bread from the hungry. Job's like, no, I didn't. And they're like, you sent widows away empty-handed and, and, and you crushed the arms of orphans. And he's like, crushed the arms of orphans? What does that even mean? And Job's like, I didn't do any of that stuff. And they're like, you must have, you must have, you must have. Because they, like us, can't wrap their head around the fact that Job did not do anything to earn his suffering. And they go through this whole thing, and really they just should have shut their mouths. Dude, if they would have just showed up and just knelt beside him and just cried with him. You know, the Bible says that we're to mourn with those that mourn and cry with those that cry. Never does the Bible say to go give our opinion to people that are hurting. What you should do is go try to point out all their faults. That's in second parentheses. Chapter 5, from the book of the world. <laughs> this sermon's not supposed to be funny, but man, it is. But hey, if we can't laugh at ourselves, then we'll never make it. Then Job replies to his friends, look at this. This is one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible. Job chapter 16, starting in verse 1, it says, Job replied, I've heard many things like these. You're miserable comforters, all of you. Will your long-winded speeches never end? When people are going to start sharing that verse on my Facebook page. And no, they won't. <laughs> and, and then Job says this, and this is the best part. He says, what ails you that you keep on arguing? And so really what Job is saying to him is, what's broken in you that you feel like you need to cast all this judgment on me? What, what's broken in you? What happened to you that you feel like that you need to say all these ugly things to me? And then he says, I could also speak like this to you if you were in my place. I could make speeches against you and shake my head at you. But my mouth would encourage you. And comfort from my lips would bring you relief. But here's the real truth, guys. Is that the comfort that we need and the comfort that those that we love need in their lives really can't come from us anyway. The only comfort that is ever going to meet the need that you have in your life comes from one place and one place alone. It's going to come from the Holy Spirit of the living God. And yes, I was very specific to mention the third person of the Trinity in this moment. Because that's what the Bible says. John 14 and 26, the Bible says this. But the Comforter, the Holy Spirit from the Father, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have taught you. See, Job's friends showed up. They should have shut up, but really we all just need to look up. Can you say amen and give God praise in the presence of God at the Way Church today, man? Come on. Yeah. 
Because like I told you before, man, presence is more powerful than pros. Your presence is more important to the people that are hurting in your life than anything that you could ever say to them. And even more importantly than that, the presence of God in our lives is more important than anything that we could ever do, anything that we could ever say, anything that we could ever share. Anything. Because the only true healing comes from above. The only true comfort comes from above. The only true empowerment that we will ever experience comes from above. It's his presence. It's, it's his presence. It's his presence. It matters more than anything that there is, man. It's the Holy Spirit of the living God, man. He's the comforter. He's the one that comes from heaven. You know, you know it's, it's, it's the father that, 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 that started the whole thing, man. And, and he was made manifest in the son, man. And the son came and sacrificed himself for it. But the one that is available to us right now in every moment of our pain and suffering is the Holy Spirit of God. Available to you to encounter and to experience and to be one with. To be one with. You know, I think we've turned church today into Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And I know this may be controversial for some people to hear, but that's not what the Trinity is. The Trinity is not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And the Bible is beautiful and wonderful, and it is oh so amazing. I love it so much. And yet we can't be satisfied with learning about God. Do you hear me? We can't be satisfied with learning about God and not experiencing God. See, what the Bible is for is so that we'll get to know the author and the subject of it. It's really just a, a way to get us to know him, to experience him, to encounter him. But learning about God will do you no good if you don't experience God for yourself. You know, when you come to that moment where you come face to face with God, he's not going to ask you how many verses that you've memorized. He's not going to ask you if you did what the preacher said and read all 42 chapters of Job, even though it gets boring in the middle. All he wants to know is if you know him. Do you know me? Do I know you? Because he wants to know you. He wants to be present in your life. And then... He wants you to carry that presence into the lives of the broken people that you have in your circle. Because that's the only thing that's really going to help them. Is his presence. Is his presence. We'll skip to the end of the book of Job. The Bible says this in chapter 42. The Lord just got done speaking to Job. And we'll get to that in two weeks. But this is what he says about the three friends. He says this. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the, 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 the manifest presence of the living God looks you right in the eyes. He says, I'm angry with you. He says, I'm angry with you because you and your two friends have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourself. And get this, and my servant Job will pray for you. 
and I'll accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly because you've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. And so Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, did what the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Oh my gosh, guys. Job does something for his friends that his friends never did for him. Over 30, almost 30 chapters of Scripture, they tried their best to fix him with their words. They tried their best to rescue him with their words. And never once do they pray for him. Because I'm telling you right now, Way Church, the best thing that you can ever do for anybody, whether they're on a mountaintop or in a valley, whether they're walking through life just as easy as can be, all rainbows and unicorns, or whether they're in a pit of suffering so deep they don't see any way out, the best thing that you can do is to pray for them. Is to pray for them. And I know sometimes we're like, well, all I can do is pray. Well, you know what? Even if you could do something else, it would still be better to pray. Even if you had a button that said, fix everything that's wrong in my friend's life, and you could just push it, it would still be better to pray for them. You know, my hero, C.H. Spurgeon, said this, give me one man that prays over 10 that preach. Because a good preacher can stir the hearts of men. But when we pray, we stir the heart of God. Amen. Guys, I want to tell you, if there's somebody in your life that's suffering, that's broken, whose life is falling apart, there is nothing better that you could ever do for them than to pray for them. It is the best thing that you could ever do. And, and to this day, I know I say this and I sound like a broken record sometimes. I don't know why it is that we wait until the end of the, the, the cycle before we start praying. I don't know why it is that I try everything in my power before I just pray. I mean, I will work my fingers to the bone trying to fix the situation. I'll exhaust every resource that I have on this earth before I hit my knees. Before I pray, before I fast, before I worship him anyway. And then every time I'm surprised that he shows up in the midst of my prayer. Man, if somebody in your life is hurting, the best thing that you could ever do for them is to pray for them. And so right now, man, we're going to end this service maybe a little differently than we do sometimes. And as our worship team comes to lead us in worship, we're just going to pray. And I look out amongst you, and I know right now, without a shadow of a doubt, I'm not going to ask you to respond because I don't want to incite anybody to lie to me this morning. I know that everybody in here has somebody in their life that's hurting because we live in a broken, jacked-up world, 
and between what's going on in our nation and overseas and right here at home and things that are going on in, in, in government and in culture and with the coronavirus, I know that every single person here has somebody in their life that's hurting, has somebody in their life that's broken, has somebody in their life that's just, just barely hanging on. I know you do. And it's probably not just somebody you know. It's probably somebody that you love dearly. And so I, I would encourage you to do two things. One is go to them. Not to say anything because your presence is more powerful than your prose, but just to be there. And then number two, and even more powerful, is to pray for them. And I don't even mean to pray that their situation is fixed. Because you don't even know if that's the right answer. I would just encourage you and challenge you to pray that they encounter him wherever they are. That they experience him wherever they are. Because his presence, his presence is more powerful than any force in all of existence. His presence is where healing is found. His presence is where comfort is found. His presence is where eternity is.